If you would take your scriptures and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 23, the entire chapter. Philippians 4, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I employ Eudi and I employ Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you share in my distress. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Aphroditus the things sent from you, sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. We come this day before you, O Lord. We know you're the sovereign Lord, the great creator God, and the gracious and merciful redeemer of your people. We rejoice in your promises with great joy. We hate and abhor falsehood. We praise you all day long, every day, for your righteous law. All who love your law know great peace of heart. We will never be drawn away from you. We wait for your salvation, O Lord. We follow your word. We obey your precepts and your commands, for all of our ways are known to you. Help us to learn more this day from your word, how to honor and glorify you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 20, 
we come to the close of this magnificent letter Paul penned to the church at Philippi. Yes, there are three more verses. But this verse ends the substance of what Paul wanted to give the Philippians. What we find in this verse is a solid note of adoration, worship, and praise. To see this, you need but read this one verse. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I hope you can sense the real feelings of Paul, of Paul in these few words because he lays his heart open. These are some really deep thoughts. We hear in these words a clear call to how Christ, our Christian life experience should at times emotionally move us. We must never see Christianity as a mere intellectual exercise. It has a very emotional side to it. It doesn't simply satisfy reason in some academic way. This Christianity we're talking about is a way of life, and it takes in every aspect of the person. It's this emotional element that causes our will to become stronger, our hearts to be filled with adoration, and to begin worship and praise. This is what Paul has laid the theological ground for in these first three chapters. The gospel is designed to bring men back to God. It is this very God Paul brings glory to in this 20th verse. He shows in this verse the God to whom we come. Now, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. We need to stop. We need to take a close look at how we pray. Jeff gave us a good example this morning. It was a good prayer. It glorified God and showed us the glory of God and then brought the supplications before you. We hear prayers in church that praise God and give him adoration all the time. Well, how often do you pray like this before your heavenly father? How often do you make your conversation with God as personal as Paul does in this verse? How often do you simply come before your father with praise, adoration, and thanks alone? Listen to your prayers and see if you ever pray without asking for something. Now, please, Paul tells us that we're to ask for everything. Uh, don't let me discourage you from bringing every burden you have before God. Scripture clearly called you to do that. But the point we're making here is that you must see God in a very personal way and approach him as your God. In this letter, Paul has called you over and over again to rejoice in the Lord. Therefore, it is quite proper that he end this letter on a note of praise and adoration. How does he do it? First, he looks to God our Father. Second, he shows that glory belongs to God. Third, he makes it clear this is forever and ever. Fourth, he closes with amen. I want to take just a minute to examine the phrase to our God. This Philippian church is a church surrounded by a whole bunch of gods. This city was populated with many who worshipped semi-human gods. But as Pastor Gwen Thomas says, it was not because gods, 
these gods that Paul was, it wasn't these gods Paul referred to. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. He wasn't referring to these types of gods. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit he referred to. In other words, he was speaking of our God. He had in mind God the Creator, the Sovereign Lord Almighty, the one and only true and living God who is both eternal and unchangeable. He had in mind the holy and righteous God who despite his holiness and his majesty is always, always merciful to sinners. He was looking to the God of love, the supreme being from whom all blessings flow. This is the God in whom all things exist. It is the God who, whose eternal purposes are worked out in the history of mankind. Paul had come to the realization that he was a part of this eternal plan. He declared, this is our God. He is our God, as James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation of shadow of turning. What he wanted the Philippians to see and understand was that this was the eternal and everlasting God. and It wasn't one of those fake gods, those pseudo-gods of, of Greece or Rome. This God was not just a neutral force coming from the universe as some unnamed deity. No, this was the God that revealed himself in creation and most of all, in Jesus Christ, our almighty and all-glorious Lord. He is also a God of redemption and love. I have to ask, do you ever think about God like this? Do you ever stop and just meditate on God in this way? Do you ever consider his greatness and his glory? Do you ever in prayer say to God, I thank you for what you are in yourself? I also want to consider another aspect of this. Paul has shown that he cannot think of God without thinking of the relationship into which God brought him. He had been, into a, been, he had been led into a position where he could say with ease, and our God and Father. That's a wonderful thing, to be able to come before God as your God. He's a personal God. In other words, he knew he had a personal relationship with God. Paul understood that. This God, this great and eternal being, this one who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, was at the same time the very God with whom Paul had this relationship of a son to a father. God had condescended to allow this sinful mortal human being the right to call him father. Paul's standing on this personal relationship to show us God's love. In Matthew 6, 9, our Lord Jesus said, we should pray like this, our Father in heaven. In Paul's day, there were a lot of, of teachings and philosophies and confusion about all gods. Most of the pagan gods were built around fantasies. Paul was clearing that all up for the Christians. He was doing that with this address. God is our Father. This concept of God is our Father and all that means brings us comfort 
that fills our hearts and our lives. We learn of the love and concern of a father through our earthly fathers, at least those who followed God's word in their dealing with their children. If you had a father who was not influenced by the scripture, you should still be able to see how important it is that fathers be godly in their treatment of their children. Why? Because you know the pain and hurt that comes from an ungodly father. That should be the thing that draws you to God because he is your heavenly father and he will always, always show his love to you. God says he wants us to think of him as our heavenly father. He wants us to know we can live out this earthly journey in the glow of his love as our father surrounded by all the graciousness and joyfulness of this relationship. It should be the goal of every Christian father to show their children the love of a godly father, for that opens to them a clear understanding of God as their eternal heavenly father. There's more to this. This relationship with God is eternal. It is a permanent relationship. Consider Paul through his life. He was beaten and left for dead. He suffered shipwreck and was beaten, bitten by a very poisonous serpent. He was arrested, imprisoned, and beaten. He was sent to Rome. There he was imprisoned, there awaiting his sentence, which would bring his death. He was old by the time he went to Rome and suffered the normal afflictions of old age. This man had been a suffering soldier of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see in Paul in his life a man whose circumstances had changed over and over again. But what we also observe is that his relationship with God never changed. He feared not his circumstances, but his trust in his Lord. From Paul in his life, we learn how to address our own lives. Stand back. Stop and look at your own life. Consider where you began. Consider where you are today. Look at the work of God in your life, the work of his grace, and consider how your relationship with Jesus Christ has grown. What you should see if you're following Jesus Christ as your Lord is the transforming power that has been at work in your heart and life. Jesus, Paul, had lived an earthly life that was filled with troubles. But he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.18, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul knew that the changes of God were in his heart in his soul and in his spirit were things others could not readily see. We can't see what God's doing in each other's heart. Those are invisible things. I hope you'll look into your heart. You'll count the blessings God has given you so that others may see changes in your character as you exercise these gifts. These then become great gifts in your relationships with one another. We begin to grow in these things we learn about Jesus Christ. 
we learn about sin and how the guilt of sin can trouble our, our whole lives. We learn how that sin and guilt can be removed by Jesus Christ. We learn about the blood of Jesus, which means his death. We learn Jesus is the one and only Son of God who cleanses us from all sin. We find the permanent access we have through Jesus to the Father in heaven. You're not going to come to God, the Father, without Jesus Christ, the Son. We see that through Christ's righteousness, we accept it in the presence of the Father. In all of this, we come to know that the very life we live on this earth has been transformed from, as Pastor Gwen Thomas says, a meaningless repartition of details and circumstances which ends in a nothingness. We're always trying to move things around to make it work better. It brings us into a pilgrimage, though, if we're truly following Jesus Christ, where we know we are journeying to our heavenly home so we can be with our heavenly Father. This is the, the comforting vision God prepared for us in his word. It's like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which we're studying in Sunday school. And what, what is the, the multitude of redeemed people in the city doing? They're crying out, hallelujah, glory be to God on high. I can but imagine that these would have been the thoughts on Paul's mind in his prison. I believe we know his thoughts because we can garner them through his epistles. My prayer for us today is that we will focus on these things, these wonderful truths that God has given us about who he is and what he has done for us. He came into this world, sent Jesus into this world to live the perfect life, to die the atoning death, and to win the resurrection victory on our behalf. It's not our works that save us, it's his works. And those are the main works we're looking to. Now let's go a little deeper into these words of Paul. Exactly what does he mean by this phrase, to our God and Father be glory? Pastor Gwen Thomas says, you should also say, honor be to God. It means that you must give God his rightful praise and extol his gloriousness. That means you must worship and adore him for his mercy and grace. If you do this with a pure heart and you put forth his love and patience, all will be able to see the majesty of his person and his faithfulness to mankind through you. That's a big order. How are you doing? You need to constantly be searching your heart to recognize you need to be giving God the glory for everything that happens in your life. It means you must give God his rightful praise. You must extol his gloriousness. That means you must worship and adore him for his mercy and grace. If you do this with a pure heart and put forth his love and patience, all will be able to see the majesty of his person and his faithfulness to mankind through you. All of these glorious attributes are true. So why do you think we don't praise and worship him more often. When God created Adam and Eve, our first parents, he created them in his image. 
with all the righteousness of created beings, not with righteousness of their own works. But God gives us the imputed divine righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the righteousness that opens for us the way to our God in eternity with him. The great Puritan Richard Seabees, who lived and ministered in the early to mid 1600s, spoke of redemption. He said, in redemption is greater love, greater mercy, and greater goodness than was given to Adam in innocency. Do you recognize that? What Adam had was not as good as what we have. Adam didn't have Christ. What was he dependent upon to get to heaven, to stay in heaven? He was already in paradise. It was his own works. Adam was in a state of probation. He was absolutely dependent on his own works. Whereas we are accepted in Jesus Christ. We live in a state of grace. Now that's got to be one of the most wonderful things you could hear. That you are living in a state in a state of grace. Therefore, we are heirs, heirs of glory and eternal life. We're the bride of Christ. We stand before the glory of God in Christ, reconciling justice and mercy. And note, what are we standing in? Christ. The works of Christ, not our own. The justice that clears away our sin is made right in the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross. The mercy of God took our sins and placed them on Jesus as he hung dying on that horrible cross. He became our substitute. And through that, we received his righteousness. Through all he did, we're forgiven, restored, accepted, reconciled to our God in Jesus Christ. So we find that the heart of this whole message is the glory of God. Jesus Christ finished the work of the Father. Now, in his perfection and through his presence, Jesus Christ came down into this sinful world, born as a human being, to live in this world with all of its pain, suffering, and sin. He spent his earthly life showing man how to deal with his sin and to find hope in spite of that sin. He, the God-man, the second person of the triune Godhead, hung as a criminal, nailed to that cross by the hands of his own creatures. He also rose from that grave. And he is now sitting at the Father's right hand. What's he doing there? Interceding for us as our high priest. You can see that he came not only to save us, but also to keep us and to continue his work in us. He forever lives in our hearts, and he has done this for us without cost to us at all. Why did he do all of this for us? He did it all out of his love. God loved us because of Jesus Christ. He he made our bodies his temple, which is indwelt by the Holy Spirit all through our earthly lives. God continues by the Holy Spirit to uphold us in heaven for eternity. Jesus came down from heaven to dwell in a body like that of a man. Bodies that can be wrecked by sin. He overcame that sin for us. It is this God of glory that works righteousness in us and has shed his love abroad in our hearts. Do you wonder? 
how Paul, sitting in a prison cell, could lift his eyes and not be moved by his surroundings and circumstances and yet keep his heart focused on God? How could this man ever lift his voice and praise God, saying, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever? He must learn from this, not to live in a particular event, but stand back and look at the overall picture of God's glorious works, especially his redemption for man. There could be no greater glory for mankind than to be restored to our God and given a place with him in heaven. To once more rest under the glory of our God. Paul adds to his statement these words, forever and ever. Why does he do this? It's because these things are not temporal, not things of a worldly nature. They're not passing whims or philosophies of the day. These are eternal and unchangeable truths. Things, these things represent those unchangeable truths of God. Therefore, they can be ascribed to him forever and ever. What you have to remember is these truths are the very ground of our faith. This is the way we look at all the circumstances which beset us in life. We hear that in the very song we are given to sing in this life and know it will continue in heaven. What is this eternal song? Revelation 19.1 and then 6-8. through 8. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and of the sound of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The after these things in verse 1 shows the change from the evil ways of this world to the wonders of heaven you will find that the break between heaven and earth is never greater than when the measure of human lawlessness is full and reaches to heaven. Remember Sodom, the angels that came to Lot? They came because the cry of the wickedness of Sodom had reached the ears of God. Please understand this. When God's plagues strike, nothing, nothing is left on earth except distress and devastation. But in heaven, a countless multitude raises the hallelujah chorus. Understand this hymn is what is called the wedding song. It represents the coming together of the bride and bridegroom for the wedding ceremony and the supper guests are invited to share in. John shows that this sound calling the guests to come is like the vast multitude of heaven praising God are like the many waters rushing to cleanse the wicked of their sin, and like peals of thunder when sin is defeated and victory given. This song and the work that went into making this song the truth of heaven and a call to all who will believe is the foundation of the Christian life. 
This is why Paul was able to rejoice in God in such terrible circumstances. He was taken through all of this in his ministry so he might preach the gospel with his whole heart. Paul was a man who faced the bleakest future, who looked at through, when looked at through human eyes, it was pretty bleak. However, God was looking through eyes of faith. These truths he stood upon are truths that are eternal. They are about God and he is always faithful to his promise. So Paul says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Paul comes to the end of this praise with the word Amen. The Puritan preacher Thomas Adams, he was born in 1583. He served as a pastor for some of the top churches in England in the early 1600s. He also wrote on the meaning of this word Amen. He says it carries four meanings. First, it means, so let it be. It is a confirmation of your heart's desire. When we hear another's prayer and we say amen, we confirm that it is our heart's desire that God would answer these prayers. Secondly, amen is also an affirmation of our faith because we should never say amen to what we do not believe. When you hear, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever, can you really say in your heart, amen, so let it be. Do you want to give glory to God as your heart desires? So it must be clear that if you do not believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you cannot say amen. You cannot confirm that this is your heart's desire. That you love the Lord Jesus Christ. That you want to exalt God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In unbelief, you cannot say amen to these truths. Third, the third meaning is that it is an acclamation. The Old Testament uses it on occasion of the anointing of kings when he's presented by the prophets of God. The prophet said, God saved the king, and all the people said, Amen. It was an acclamation, an acclamation that they accepted him as their king. Can you claim Jesus Christ as your king? Can you, in your heart, get down before him and say to him, Amen? Can you say to him, You're my king. Glory to be to you, my father. To you, the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior. To you, the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell within me. I want to exalt you as God, the sovereign ruler of my life. I want to say amen to you. Finally, Pastor Adam shows amen as a resolution. As though we are pledging ourselves to say, I will resolve to glorify God in my life. Understand, this is a very solemn thing to say. It means to resolve to glorify God all day, every day, and for the rest of your life. In this book of Philippians, we see Paul in prison looking to God, calling the Philippians to join in his rejoicing. He says to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. He is also calling upon each one of us to join him. My prayer as your pastor is that you join me in saying amen to this verse. In conclusion, I want to make sure you see the importance of glorifying God. 
David is one who can clearly show the glory of God in his prayers. First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours be the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. This lays out the wonderful acts of God that fill our hearts with rejoicing and shows God's glory. You will see this glory as you come to the throne of our God and Father. Isaiah 6.3 speaks about the seraphim as they fly around the throne crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Even the angels are always acknowledging God's glory, so you should not also, should you not also be doing the same thing? What did the people of Israel do as they watched Jesus perform miracles? Matthew 15, 31. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This was the proper response to seeing the works of God. The works of God today are seeing people's souls saved. Are you lifting your voice to glorify God in calling people to salvation? The 24 elders that sit around the throne in heaven lift their voices continually in praise for who he is, for what he has done, and what men will do with the crowns they gather in this life. Revelation 4.11 You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. When we get to heaven, what are you going to do with the crowns that you have garnered here on earth? You're going to throw them at the feet of Jesus Christ because he's the one that gave you the grace and the mercy to accomplish them. I trust through these few verses that you have come to see that to God be the glory. Let's pray. We come before you this morning, O oh Lord, to thank you for who you are and all that you do for us. There is no other that can fill our hearts with peace and joy. Your peace, O oh Lord, surpasses all understanding and guards our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Take the things we learn from your word and apply in our lives and use them to glorify your name. We know you will meet our every need from the riches of heaven. Our God and Father, it is you and you alone that deserves glory. So we pray in Jesus' name that you as our God and Father receive all glory forever and ever. Amen. If you would take your hymnals.